0: In the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye is uh, is a central character in the story. He's a a Jewish man living in Russia at the turn of the 20th century, and he's a very poor milkman married with five daughters. Uh, During the course of the the story, there are several themes that are going on. One of them that there's there's this communist philosophy and movement beginning to sweep through uh, the early part of the 20th century in Russia, precluding, of course, the Russian Revolution. And and there's there's this push against the culture and traditions and and people of the the czar and his government. Along with this story, of course, there's also a story going online that follows Tevye and his family. During the course of the the movie or the musical, three of his daughters get married, none of them to men that he would have chosen, much to his consternation. Along with these crises, crises, he also faces the challenges brought about by this this movement, political movement, and, and what it means for his village and the relationships with the, the non-Jews. As a man of faith, he struggles with all these things that seem to be coming up against him, even to the point of adding insult to injury when his, his, his trusted friend and companion, his horse, who pulls his milk wagon around for deliveries, pulls up lame. An ongoing conversation throughout the movie uh, in this musical happens between Tevye and God, it's kind of the heart of the story. And when all this is, gets to be too much to Tevye, he looks at the sky, he raises his fist, he shakes it in the air, and he questions what God is doing. In a memorable line, he says, uh, we know we are your chosen people, but maybe sometimes you could choose somebody else. Basically what he's saying is, is God toying with me? Why does my life have to be so doggone hard? Have you ever felt that way? that life brings you one tough break after another, one tough circumstance or situation, and it just seems to be too much, and you wonder, like Tevye, is God messing with me? Is God just toying with us? It's like a a young boy playing with a, a beetle who's crawling across the floor with a stick, and he flips it over, and he pushes it around, and flips it over when it starts to crawl, and keeps playing with it, frustrating it, keeping it from going where it wants to go. Well, the myth I want to deal with today is a myth that, that God is, is a myth that God is against us, that we're like that beetle and, and God is like the boy with a stick, and as we go through life, that He's just experimenting with us, that He's not really for us. You know, I've known people who felt that way, and and people who seem it seems like one bad thing after another happens to them, uh, long-term disease or health issues. Marital problems, problems with their kids, problems with their job or vocation, financial issues, and when it begins to pile up, they wonder: Is God being vindictive? Does He care? Is He against me? Maybe you feel that way today, and if you do, I want to I want to say right off the start that that God is not against you. That God stands toward us is not one of of opposition. Rather, God is for his people. The passage that was read just a few minutes ago by Dominic is a portion of scripture that I've shared many, many times over the years in ministry. Uh, And and it's a passage that I believe most clearly shows us that God is not against against us, but God rather is for us. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote this down, and he he wrote a lot of powerful, profound things that are included in the Scriptures. But these verses are right at the the top of the list for their impact upon me, and hopefully their impact upon you too. So if you're not still there at Romans 8, would you turn with me for a minute to (laughs) Romans 8, verse 31? I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I would like to read a couple, three or four verses. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. God cares about us at a very foundational, basic level because he's created us and he's called us. He has made a way for us to be forgiven. He's justified us. He offers us eternal life. In essence, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's for us. Dave Gibson, who's a pastor in Texas, tells a story about when he was in college, he flunked organic chemistry. It was a class that was required for him to, to graduate, and so he again re-enrolled and, and took it again. But this time he took it from a professor that knew him personally and that knew his family. And one day when the class had finished an important test, he walked up front with the rest of the students and he turned in the test, one page, eight questions that they all answered. He turned it into the professor. The professor looked at it for a moment, crumbled up and threw it in the trash, and he said, Dave, come back tomorrow and why don't you try again? Gibson did come back the next day. This time he passed the test and he went on to graduate. The difference, this time he had a professor who, who knew him personally, who was invested in his success, someone who wanted him to make the grade, someone who gave him another chance. A professor was, was for him in a much grander, much more profound way God is for us. He's invested in us making it through this life in a way that honors him. And he's given us all that we need for life and godliness. The scripture tells us that in Second in Peter chapter 1. We, the Bible tells us, have Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. We, the Bible tells us, have the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to help us, to direct us, to encourage us, to shape us, to give us strength. God, the message of the Bible, is for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to get everything we want in life and that everything is going to go the way we want to in life because Jesus himself told us that there will be hard times. Remember what he said? He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, you have overcome the world. So the statement that God is for us does not mean that there will not be trouble for his people. The fact that God is for us means that we do have everything we need for life and godliness, i.e., we have everything necessary to live our lives in a way that honors God, serves Him, and serves others. And the reason we know that we have all things in Christ Jesus is when we turn and look at the cross. Paul tells us who can be a four against this and He says, in light of all these things, in light of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you, Don't ever doubt that God is against you, or don't ever doubt that God is for you. Rather, he is not against you. He is for you. He is for us. So we may ask, if God's for us, then when we look at the world and the life around us, why are there so many tough and hard things? Why all the disease and the pain and the hurt, the the relationship problems, the money problems, the health issues, how can a God who is for us allow these things to happen? Why do they happen? About 30 years ago, a man named Rabbi Kushner uh, wrote a book entitled Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was on the New York Times bestseller list for quite a, quite a while. Maybe some of you have read that. Um, and in the book, Rabbi Kushner answers the book's title question by writing that, that God is not powerful enough to stop the bad things in his life, that he's trying really, really hard. But he can't control everything, can't stop bad things from happening to good people. He can't be there for everyone, uh, even including, quote, good people. So Custod's theological position is that God is finite, that he has limitations. And the application, he says, God's good, but he's not all powerful. And so we need to cut God some slack. We need to get off his back. In fact, he says we need to forgive God for the bad things that happen in this world. Now, biblically speaking, that's the wrong answer. We we talked about this question a little bit last week, just a portion of the sermon, but today we're going to delve into it a little bit more. And we're going to see um, some biblical responses, not all of them, to this question, but we're going to look at some of these questions to see if God is actually for us in the midst of tough times. Uh, You'll find responses on the screen, or if you want to, also on Version apps, if you'd like. First, reason A. Sometimes we suffer in this world simply because we live in a fallen and sinful world. We live in a world and a universe that's affected by the fall. Things are no longer as God intended before the fall. The scripture tells us that even nature itself is groaning in bondage. And so, what that means for us is that nature and our, our systems, our culture, our traditions, our societies, our governments, even the way we relate at times, our personalities, they're all fallen. They're all imperfect. They all fall short of what God's intention is for us in our world, and we're in bondage to sin. And because sometimes, sometimes things happen that are painful and hard. Sometimes things happen that are fair, that don't seem fair or right, and people get hurt. The answer is simply because we live in a fallen and sinful world. Jesus gives us a classic example of this in uh, Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 4. Jesus is, is, is talking about repentance, calling people to repentance. And he, as part of his, his call to repentance, he tells a story. That it's not a parable. It's, it's a new story and a current event that actually happened in his time. In the story, he talks about, in Luke 13, about this town named Siloam. And it has this tower, this big tower. And the tower fails and it falls. And 18 people who are, who are close to the tower get crushed and they die. And Jesus asked the question are these 18 the most evil people in the town of Siloam? Jesus answers, no, of course not. These are the 18 people who happened to be standing near the tower when it fell. They just happened to be there. They lived in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, when towers fall, you're killed if you're too close to the tower. In 1964, a massive earthquake hit uh, Anchorage, Alaska, Um, and only two people were killed, but they were killed by the, when the, when the, the, the facade of, on the front of the J.C. store fell off. It's a big brick facade. And there was a man who was walking on the sidewalk. He was crushed. And a woman driving in a car on the street. She was crushed. They were both killed. Were they the two most evil people in Anchorage? Of course not. They were in a bad place when something bad happened. And, and that's the kind of universe and world that we live in. And as a person of faith, we need to be able to say, If something like that happens to us or someone we love or know, when something bad happens to good people, that we're going to continue to trust in God. We're going to keep leaning on Him, persevering on Him, persevering in our faith, and leaning on God for help and strength and grace. So sometimes bad things happen simply because we live in a fallen world. Reason B. Sometimes we suffer because of the consequences of our own sin and foolishness. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Galatians is simply saying to us, uh, stating a biblical principle, that what we sow is what we reap. What we sow is what we get. If I put in carrots, I'm not going to get corn. When I do something foolish or stupid or sinful, it often results in something bad for me. For instance, if you go home today and you want to try a little experiment take out a metal rake, lay it on the driveway with the tines facing up, and step on it, see what happens. You're going to get whacked in the face, right? If we do something stupid or foolish, we're going to, there's going to be consequences. If we do something sinful, the consequences may not come right away, but eventually they will come. What we sow is what we will reap. And when these things happen in our lives and we have hardships, sometimes we need to step back and say, is there anything that I'm doing in my choices that are causing me pain and hardship? D.L. Moody, the great evangelist at the turn of the 20th century, said, I've never had as much trouble with any man as I've had with myself. We are our own worst enemies. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we suffer as a result of our choices. Our own actions, our own attitudes, or our wrong beliefs. Reason C. Reason C. There we go. Sometimes we suffer the consequences of others' sins, and foolishness. Classic example of this is from Second Samuel twenty-four, where King David is established. He's kind of the height of his powers. His nation is growing. His army is huge and influential and to be feared. And so one day he. He he tells his commander, uh, Joab, to go and and count, to see how many people he has in his army, to see how many people he has in his nation. And the Bible tells us that the reason that, that David wanted this to be done was because he was starting to trust more and more in the size and strength of his army than he was in God. And somehow or another, Joab picked up on this attitude, and he said, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to do this. But David insists, and so Joab goes through with the count. After Joab returns and gives David the count, God says to David, since you've decided to reject me and my leadership, and since you've put your trust now in the number of your people, there's going to be a pestilence in the land, and 70,000 people died. Did they do anything wrong? It was the consequences of their leader's sins. Now, I'm sure you can think of a contemporary example. A person makes a choice to drive drunk. They're driving down the road, and they hit somebody else. They survive, but the person in the other car dies. Did the dead person do anything wrong? No. The drunk driver did. Sometimes we suffer the consequences of others' sins and foolishness. An application for this is that if someone around you or somebody in authority over you does does something that's sinful or foolish, and you suffer the consequences, the biggest temptation is what? to get really angry, to become bitter and obsessed with a situation and that person. Even though it's not fair, even though it's not right, even though we did nothing wrong, we must avoid the temptation to continue to trust in God instead and to let him sort out the things in this world or in the next. Reason D. Sometimes hard things happen because God is trying to test our faith, to to, to purify it, to prove it, to grow it. Uh, Like putting heat upon us to to purify, to burn out all the impurities and to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finishes its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything You know, throughout our lives, God uses challenges to deepen our faith. When when we're five years old and heading off to kindergarten for the first time and we're scared to go without mom and dad, we need to trust God then, don't we? When we're getting a little bit older and we're 25 and getting married, when we're 40 and raising teenagers, when we're middle-aged and facing a career change or financial stress, we're called to trust God. When we're retired, when we're towards the end of our life and our health is failing, we're called to trust God then, too. And the trials seem to get harder. As we go along. And because of that reason, we need a bigger, better, purer faith. And so God uses the hard things in our lives to grow our faith. And you know, the majority of the people I know who are the most mature in their faith have one common denominator they've gone through some really difficult situations. Sometimes God uses the hard things in our lives to grow our faith through trials. Reason E. Sometimes hard things happen to us because we need hard things to grow up. That's the way we mature, right? As parents, what's one of the worst things you can do as your kids get older and they get into some, some tough situation or, or trouble? Is to bail them out, right? We can come alongside them. We can encourage them. We can help them. We can pray for them. We can motivate them. We can be there for them. But sometimes the best thing to do is is to let them kind of work it out because it prepares them for when they're on their own. It helps them mature and grow up and persevere, and that's how they develop character and that's how he develop perseverance. And God does the same thing with us. He wants us to, to persevere through trials and hard times, to trust in him so, so that with his help and his encouragement and the power of the Holy Spirit, we mature and we grow up and we become more like Jesus Christ. God is making us more able to minister to other people through the hard times. Second Corinthians one, three through five says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Here's the key who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. In other words, God is making us better ministers by allowing us to go through hardship. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter that we're all a part of the priesthood of believers. That means we're all ministers. We're all called to use our gifts and our talents. We're all to use our life's experiences, especially the tough ones, to help and to minister to people. I can think of several personal examples. Many of you know this, but when we were in Canada, our first child was stillborn. That was an incredibly difficult time for us. But there were people who were able to come alongside us and minister to us because they'd been there. They had been through tough circumstances, and they were to offer the comfort to us that they had received from God. And down the road, Nancy and I have had the chance to do the same because of that experience. We become better ministers, better disciples of Christ, by going through hardship if we let God use the situation to do so, and if we don't waste the lessons in the hardship. One of the best pieces of advice that I, I ever received was do not waste your pain. Do not waste the pain in your life. Don't waste the pain of going through tough times. Learn greater empathy. Learn more compassion. Learn how to help others. Learn how to listen. Learn how to trust more in God. Learn how to grow through the pain and use those experiences to minister and to help others. Reason G. Sometimes through hard times, God motivates us action. In, In the seventh chapter of Acts, we find the account of Stephen. He's the first martyr of the church. He was stoned to death because of his faith in God. And the result of his martyrdom, we find right away in chapter eight, verse one, where it says on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Because of this persecution, believers leave the familiarity of Jerusalem and they begin to spread out into the countryside, into Judea, into Samaria, into the small towns and villages and begin to share their experience of Jesus Christ and people come to faith. Now, it's interesting to note that in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, sort of a reverse bookend here, believers are given their marching orders where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and thousands are saved as Peter preaches. But then in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, they're still in Jerusalem. They, they haven't moved. They're still there. They haven't gone. and are not doing what God has called them to do. And, and hardship comes, and, and it drives them out. And they begin to do what God was calling them to do. And they begin to go where God was calling them to go. Sometimes God motivates us through tough situations in our lives. He's an H. Sometimes God is doing things that we have no idea about. We don't understand it, we don't know anything about it, and we never will. Classic example is in Job chapter 1. Remember the story, Job is a wildly successful man financially, uh, lots of land, lots of livestock. He's got a great family, lots of kids. Uh, He's got a great reputation in in the town and community. He's a man who's devout and follows God. And then there's this strange contest between God and, and Satan, where Satan... Uh, gets God to agree to let Satan test Job's faith. And a series of really terrible things happen to this good man. He loses his wealth, loses his family, loses his health, and he has no idea why it's happening. There are times in our lives when something may happen and it's tough and we can't seem to figure out why. And it's in times like those that we need to fall back on this truth, that God is good, that God is for us, and that God is up to something. And, and that something eventually in His time and in His way will work out for our good. But you see, God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He is always working for us, and He never gets off task. Romans eight twenty eight promises, God works all things together, together for the good of those who love Him. And finally, reason I. I'm sure you're relieved to know that we're going through Z today. So, reason I. Sometimes hard things happen because God is building into us a longing for heaven. Hard things sometimes happen in our lives to create a a longing, a desire to be with him in a relationship where there aren't these barriers of sin. We're in a place where there isn't pain and sorrow and misunderstanding and and all sorts of problems. And so sometimes God allows hard things in our lives to create in us a longing for, for relationship with him in heaven. Because this is not the world we are created for. This is not our final destination. Uh, we are created for a world where there is community and relationship that is not tainted by by sinful people and sinful structures and a sinful fallen world. We are created for a world where there is nothing but love and peace and joy and relationship with God and his people forever and ever. In Philippians 1, 21-26, Paul says something really interesting. He says, I should want to stay with my fellow Christians and minister to them, but... What my really, what my heart really desires, I want to be in heaven. I want to be with my Lord and my Savior Jesus. Sometimes hard things happen because God is building into us a longing for heaven. Because you see, when I'm young and healthy, and I'm in college, and I'm dreaming about what's going to happen in my life, and who am I going to meet, and what's going, to, where we're going to go, and what I'm going to accomplish, what I'm going to experience, I'm probably not really longing to be in heaven just yet, am I? And when I'm just getting married and starting a family or got a career to build or places to go or people to, to meet, I'm not really longing for heaven then either. But when my health is failing, when the diagnosis isn't good, when I'm 80, 90, 100, all the hard experiences of my life should change my, my perspective. I should be ready to be with my Savior, to be done with this world and to be in heaven. And so God uses the tough things in our lives at times, to build into us a longing for heaven. I want to conclude with the question we started with. Is God against us? And the answer, obviously, is absolutely not. Because even though tough things happen, God is for us in the midst of them. He's for us, working in us, through us, and with us. For our good, for the good of others, and for the good of his kingdom. And if in the midst of, of tough times in your lives, you ever doubt that God is for you, remember these words. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul sums things up beautifully here, in case we have any doubt at all that God is for us. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present, the future, or any powers, their height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father we come before you and we thank you for your word of truth and we thank you Lord as we have seen from your word that you are not against us but rather Lord you are passionate deeply, intentionally eternally for us. We thank you for the fact that even through tough times you are working for our good. You are sustaining, you are empowering, you are coming alongside, you are helping us, Lord. We thank you that the ultimate expression of your being for us is found on the cross. We thank you that you did not hold anything back but sent your son Jesus Christ to die for our sin, that we might be forgiven, we might be made whole, so that we might Find that place in heaven that our heart longs for, to be with you and your people forever and ever. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible, amazing love. We thank you that absolutely nothing, not even the hard times, can separate us from the love that you have given us in your Son and through your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.